<clears throat> nobody, 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 nobody. Nobody rage short stories. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Nobody Read Short Stories. This is season four. Yes, this is so exciting. Um, so for all of our diehard Nobody Read Short Stories fans who are aware of our previous seasons, you may notice this season there's going to be a little more of me and a little less of Jeremy in all of the hosting duties. But don't fret, Jeremy is still around. He will be co-hosting uh, several episodes and also acting as a performer. And you may even get a little bit something extra from him on down the road. So do not worry, he is still very much around. So let's go ahead and dive into our first story of season four. And, uh, and in celebration of the high holiday that is tonight, um, Halloween, right in time for the spooky season. This is Patrick Barb's Have You Seen My Missing Pet? While the old man waits outside Sally's awning, rain sluices down his scalp, falling past his eyes so it looks like he's crying. The steady hammering raindrops roll through the labertine indentations of his wrinkled cheeks. Sally doesn't say a word as the old man's brown leather dress shoes squelch and squish, then twist and tap against her discarded jacket and baby's diaper bag, the one she's sure she hung on the hooks by the front door, all puddled on the floor. She ignores the rainwater leaking from the old man's gray trench coat. The water soaks into the brand new hardwood floor her father-in-law, soon to be ex-father-in-law, installed when her in-laws bought the place for Sally and Val. You know, I paid a lot of money to get the floor replaced, young lady. He used to love to remind her. But now Sally doesn't give a damn what happens to the floor. There's a not so small part of her hoping the dripping old man ruins it forever. As they stand a moment past awkward in the foyer, Sally breathes in the lingering sense of her hoity-toity Park Slope neighborhood at night humid late summer downpour and the sidewalk offerings of trash day. Thank you for letting me in, the old man says with a smile more genuine than his tears. I was asking if you'd seen my missing pet. How long it's been since I hosted guests? Since Val lived here? Even in those times, it was always his friends, his family. She holds a hand out to the old man but when she notices baby's pink pacifier grip between her thumb and forefinger, she pulls her hand and the unexpected pacifier back into the shadows. If the old man notices, he doesn't give her any indication. As if he's just become aware of his leaking presence in a stranger's home, the old man wipes a pale hand across the top of his head. The simple accents water scented by his old man hair tonic splattering onto Sally's coat and the diaper bag and the brand new hardwood floor. My apologies for the mess, the old man says. His voice reminds Sally of lozenges, smooth, sweet, but also antiseptic, clinical. It's raining cats and dogs out there, as they say. Let's take another look at Sally. Sally from before. The Sally from before worries she's about to pull her arm out of its socket as she yanks baby's car seat out of the back of the Uber. It's the same Uber she waited 45 minutes for because navigating the subway stairs was out of the question given the bulk of the car seat and there wasn't a single cab in Manhattan willing to stop for her. None who'd go to Brooklyn and they don't care when you tell them they're legally obligated to do so either. Assholes. Of course, the jostling of the car seat wakes baby. He opens his mouth to scream and gets a mouthful of rain for his troubles. He sputters, coughs, and then finds his screeching wail, beseeching the heavens for God knows what. Sally wishes for another hand to stroke baby's chubby cheek, to offer her finger to his always eager mouth, giving him something to drool on. She'd let him grind his one jagged popcorn kernel of a tooth freshly popped past his gum line, along her knuckle. Instead, she's got one hand on the carrier handle and the other is filled with baby's overstuffed diaper bag, her laptop bag, 
with its frayed, broken shoulder strap, was clutched between her arm and ribs. You know, you ought to get a stroller, one you can put your car seat in. You're living in such a nice neighborhood for walking, the Uber driver says. He makes no move to unbuckle his seatbelt, get out of the car, and help Sally. Yeah, I know, she says, pushing her hip against the car door, hoping she swung it hard enough to click shut, but not hard enough so she ends up with another bruise. It's not like I planned for my husband, my almost ex-husband, to call me at four in the afternoon and say, sorry, babe, change of plans, can't take the baby this weekend, come and get him, and hurry, okay? He left the stroller back at his parents' house and then handed this baby to me, this capital B baby we'd made together back when he still said he loved me and I still half believed him because we made a capital B baby together, you know, and then he left me without giving me a word of excuse or apology, but he kissed me on the cheek. And when he did, I smelled his special time to get laid cologne. Good for him, right? The old man sits in one of the sea foam green dyed wicker chairs Sally's using around the breakfast nook. Its seat creaks as his jagged glass angular hips settle into it. Sally stands between the old man and a view of her sink, overflowing with unwashed dishes, caked in reheated Sara Lee detritus and half-dissolved remnants of powdered formula. My pet, the old man says, continuing the conversation from the foyer, he got loose around here, right near your home. Oh, Sally asks, do you live around here then? <clears throat> Before he answers, Sally runs through the lookbook of her day-to-day, -day, flipping past the faces, voices, hands, and all those walking, walking, forever walking legs she's encountered, from the coffee shop at the end of the block to the subway platform one avenue over and up and down, winding through the sidewalks of her memories. The old man waves a liver-spotted hand like he's got some important business to attend to, with the weather like it is, it makes him upset. And, well, you know how it goes with pets and thunderstorms. Sally nods. She doesn't know much about pets. My last pet was a hermit crab in middle school. I begged Ma to buy me one from the shore. It took a week until my whole room smelled like someone pissed seawater and died. I never even got around to naming it before I got stuck with an empty shell and the nauseating odor of dead and dying things. What Sally does know is how weather like this affects babies, affects her baby. On cue, thunder rolls, lightning smacks the sky, storm clouds moving closer. Another lightning strike hits the cable antenna of a nearby building with a crackle and a pop. A sizzle follows instead of a snap. Sally's grateful the noise doesn't wake baby. The last thing she wants is for him to scream so loud he blows out the speakers on the monitor. Again. Damn it, the monitor. Sally pivots from her position blocking the sink. She stretches across the kitchen countertop and flicks the switch on the tiny white baby monitor resting on the corner. The worn device is covered in scuffs and scratches like a boxer past his prime. An orange spot glows in the lower right of the hard plastic shell like a lit match head in the darkness, a sign of life. He's quiet. Of course he is. I'm sorry, Sally says, as her knuckles brush past a stack of unopened bills she keeps by the stove, daring herself to someday set them ablaze. My baby's sleeping upstairs. It's good you're able to get him to sleep in weather like this, the old man says. He places both hands flat against the table. His knuckles jut out, swollen like twin mountain ranges, blue veins exploded across them. The rain from before unleashes itself in rapid-fire machine-gun bursts. It strafes Sally's hair, the sidewalk, and, of course, the crying, crying, when will he stop crying, baby. After getting herself adjusted for the walk to her brownstone, Sally tunes out the cries, focusing instead on the slap, slap, slap of the baby carriage lady's cheap rubber flip-flops. The noise comes from behind mother and child. The baby carriage lady makes her evening round circling the puddled end of Sally's block. Sally pictures the disheveled woman in her gray-green hoodie with the hood pulled over her wispy silver hair. 
The baby carriage lady's face is pale, cottage cheese complexion revealed in part of the moonlight and the street lamps reflecting off her dark garments resembling a starless sky. Sally can't recall how long it's been since the baby carriage lady appeared on the block. Six weeks? That's how long it's been since Sal told me about Tina or Tiana or whatever the hell her name is. Is that how long it's been since I worked up the nerve to tell him to get the fuck out? He punched the window in baby's nursery and I screamed and baby screamed and Val cried and cried. Of course, I ended up calming Val down and calling an Uber to drive him to the hospital. I tried to get to the back of the car with him, but he grabbed my wrist and squeezed tight. He held it there for a moment before saying, no, Sally, you've got to stay with the baby, remember? Sally imagines how Val would handle the baby carriage lady if he was still around. She sees his nostrils wrinkling after getting a whiff of the woman's heady au naturel perfume, like cabbage shits and boiled tires. But there's no Val. So the baby carriage lady keeps to her circular path, pushing an empty stroller. No words, no screams, no spitting. It's why Sally's neighbors let the disheveled bag lady stick around. Of course, she does stink like a dead dog. Get you anything to eat, to drink? Sally asks the old man. Coffee, tea? The monitor chirps like a startled baby bird. Sally's eyes fall to it fast, but no sob, scream, or whimper follows from upstairs in the nursery. Oh, a hot cup of tea is just the thing. I don't remember any lost or missing pet posters around the neighborhood, Sally says, filling her dented silver teapot, the one she got from her mother. She flings open the cabinets by the stove, trying to remember where she put her last box of Darjeeling. He's just run away tonight but I worry about him out all alone. I guess he's like my child. The old man nods when Sally holds out the box of tea bags for his inspection. My wife and I worry about him out in the rain like this. We fear he'll catch a cold or act out without our supervision. Don't misunderstand. He, we trained him well, but we never sought to domesticate him. Uh-huh, is that so? Sally's on autopilot. She turns a knob on the stove. The flame leaps up, licking at the sides of her teapot. We've kept him inside our house, down in his cage, since the day we brought him home, 15 years ago now. The teapot rattles as the water inside grows more and more agitated. Sally presses on the silver knob at the top of the pot to fix the seal. Already, the metal's hot enough to burn her palm before she pulls it back. Across the table, the old man sits with his legs spread wide like an old friend come a-callin' for gossip and giggles. Fifteen years? Quite a life for a dog. He must be a good boy, Sally says. Good boy, yes, but not a dog, the old man stands. The kettle shrieks. Baby joins the chorus. His screams come filtered through the monitor like a middle school principal's announcement from a cafeteria loudspeaker. Attention, mommy, please report to baby. Sally moves for the stairs, but she finds the old man blocking her way. Standing there in the area between the kitchen and the living room, he feels more space than she expected. Baby cries in stereo, the garbled electronic shrieks of the monitor and the bellowing tumble-down real ones from upstairs. She pictures him there, one chubby, red, splotchy arm bursts free from his cloth swaddle, pounding his fist against his chest. Tears, salty with rainwater, cover his cheeks. Baby watches the Yankee Doodle mobile his mommy bought him at the flea market. The old man puts his hand on Sally's arm. His skin is soft to the touch. It reminds her of marshmallow fluff. Sally made it down the block and into the townhouse. She trudged up the stairs to the second floor. At least Baby wasn't crying anymore. Instead, he sucked loudly on two fingers. Later, she'd pull those two same fingers from his mouth and find he'd left them wrinkled and white, thin, pale sticks like leftover happy hour pretzels. Like they used to serve for free with the purchase of a mm -hmm. beer at the bar where she first met Val. 
They'd set a 5 p.m. date right after work so no funny business could happen. But then it was nine o'clock and Sally had forgotten to eat dinner. Then Val said, let's do shots. He kissed her at the jukebox after letting her pick the breeders. He told her he didn't care who saw them. And she wanted to believe it because he'd kissed her like he didn't care about anything, even me. All alone with baby, Sally let herself fall back into the nursing chair. She kept baby's head level to her chest as she descended. With the practice precision shared by long range snipers and exhausted nursing mothers, she performed a one-handed Houdini, partially shedding her work shirt and undoing the nursing bra below before her ass even touched the cushioned sheet. Baby's pebble of a tooth ground against her nipple as he fed, but Sally refused to cry out until he drew blood. When she did, he pulled away from her breast to look up at her, scared, confused. It's okay, baby, mama's here. I'm sorry, Sally says. It's my baby, I need to. The old man removes his pillowcase soft fingers from her arm. He places one finger against his lips, shushing her. They stand there in silence at the bottom of the stairs. There it is, the silence. Relief radiating from every pore, Sally tiptoes back to the kitchen. She's giddy as she pulls down the mugs and pours the piping hot water from the kettle over the tea bag slung inside. The old man's returned to his chair. How did you know he'd go back to sleep? She asked, placing Val's unclaimed, just like daddy, mug in front of her guest. The old man holds up two fingers. Two things I use with my pet. The first is patience, he says. Sally leans in, placing elbows on the table, not caring if her cleavage shows. It's some old man looking for his lost pet after all. When my wife and I brought our pet home, oh, how he cried and cried. Didn't matter what bed we let him sleep in or the treats we'd give him. He cried even more. But I told him, you cry, but I wait. And I've far more waiting in me than any tears you hope to shed. Sally blows across her tea. Her breath sends the tea bag pinwheeling around inside the mug. Her eyes grow wide as the old man takes his second finger and sticks it right inside the steaming hot contents of his mug. Red welts pop out on doughy white skin. Without skipping a beat, he stirs and continues to speak. The second is through discipline. There's a pain for the pet, punishment, verbal, physical, or mental. But there's also a pain for the master. You must endure, stand firm. He pulls his red finger from the mug. The orange-brown liquid drips onto the tabletop. Sally checks the orange dot on the monitor. So quiet again. Do you understand what I'm saying? The old man asks her. Sally pulls her attention from the monitor and back to the old man. She shakes her head with a bemused grin. I'm afraid not, she says. The old man sips his tea. He doesn't offer any filler for the awkward silence. It's not until Sally's third attempt to place baby in the crib and pull her arms away that she gets it right. Baby coughs for a moment, his eyelids fluttering. Sally whispers a quick and foul mouth prayer, hoping God excuses the salty content of her language and grants her wish to please let this fucking baby go to fucking sleep. His eyelids fall. He gives her one last squirm and he's asleep. Sally shuffles back away from the crib. Each step is taken with care. The last thing Sally wants is to step on some squeaking, squawking rubber monster or some singing teddy bear. Below the crib, a nightlight plugged into the corner socket pulses red, off, own, off, own, like a heartbeat. Street light from the block behind the townhouse shines into the nursery, distorted by the repair tape applied to the broken glass of the window. Val was supposed to send someone the week before to replace the pane, but of course he forgot. At least there's enough tape to hold the broken pieces in place, but it's not enough to stop the whistling of the wind from seeping indoors. The old man sips his tea, not saying a word about his strange and violent stirring method. Sally does the talking. Our landlord won't allow us to keep pets, she says. The old man turns to look at the stairs. What is it? Sally asks. 
My pet, he likes to climb, the old man says. We found him swinging his hands across the monkey bars at the park. A pause? Sally whispers her correction. Now she can't take her eyes off the stairs either. Why is it so quiet up there? The old man bangs his mug against the tabletop as he sets it down. The last splash of tea sloshes out and springs across to hit Sally's hand. Ouch! It's still so hot. He's a rescue, the pack he ran with, soft, weak. They couldn't care for him as he needed caring for. Sally's mug sits untouched. She's listening to the old man, but she's also listening for something else, something unheard, an absence she can't name. The problem is we got him too old, too old to become the pet we wanted him to be. He came with so many bad habits. We did what we could to turn him into a serviceable creature, obedient, fiercely obedient. It's the wind. The, the winds changed. The whistling, thumping sound of the storm against the taped up glass is gone. The windows open. Sally stands again. This time the old man remains seated. His eyes follow her and then his words, he made me stop here. You sang to your whelp on the fire escape. He pulled at the leash, dragging me closer and closer, his instincts growing sharper and sharper. And I did promise him a treat. Sally stumbles, her hurrying feet caught under the hem of her dressing gown. Fight or flight triggers all defenses. She's ready to spin around and yell at the old man, tell him to get the hell out of her house, but he's an old man, an old man who's lost, what breed of dog again? One with hands, found on a playground, kept in his house for 15 years. What kind of dog? She asks. Young lady, I never said he was a dog. There's a creaking at the top of the stairs right by the nursery door. Ah, there, the old man says, rising from his seat at last. I told you he got lost around here. The pet paces at the top of the stairs. It's a man, but not a man, something once intended for manhood, but brought up wrong. It crawls down the steps, hairy arms and legs outstretched. It scrambles for purchase against the padded carpet and the finish of the hardwood floor. Its hair hangs oil slick, dripping strands over unkept brows. A beard flops against a bone-white chest. The old man's pet tilts its head at the sound of Sally's whimpering gasp. Bloodshot eyes move from Sally to the old man. Sally's hands tremble like a junkie inside a withdrawal. She's certain she's the one grinding her teeth until she figures out the sawing sound comes from the stairs. The pet growls at her, showing yellow teeth and blackened gums. Long, chipped fingernails scratch into the carpet, ripping and tearing out strands. The old man stands behind Sally while she's frozen at the bottom of the stairs. He holds a hand up, steadying his pet with silent commands. Breaking free from her trance of fear, Sally clutches the railing for lack of better support. Breathe in, breathe out, like labor. Concentrate on breathing, babe. The babies. Why can't I hear my baby? Sally spins and grabs the old man by the collar of his shirt. Silent relief washes over her when she turns from the stairs. She can't stand the sight of the pet resting on its haunches with its tongue lolling out from between blistered lips. She escapes into a, this more manageable panic. She pulls the old man's face close to hers, her nose against his. Spittle flies from her lips. What did it do to my baby? The old man pushes her back, shoving her against the stairs. She lands hard on her ass, hitting the bottom step. Attack! There's no time for Sally to think. She throws up a hand, a last-ditch defense. The pet stumble crawls down the remaining steps to its prey. Then it's on top of her. Its hair, hands, and feet cover Sally. Its rotten teeth sink into her flesh of her arm. Blood sprays and she screams. The tangy copper liquid hits her mouth. It tastes like hot pennies on a summer sidewalk after an evening's rain. She pulls her arm away. Still, her flesh relents to the pet's hungry mouth and tears like soggy cardboard. More teeth, more biting. Next, the pet's claw-like fingernails pierce her nose and cheeks. 
She moves her hands, desperate to cover her eyes. Can't let him bite me there. Mama bear strength comes in the form of an adrenaline-fueled shove. The pet tumbles over her, headed for the floor. The old man continues watching, studying the attack. Sally pulls herself up, crawling, sliding back, trying her best to move up the stairs. Can't slow down. Baby, baby, what did it do to baby? She stops at the landing. At the top of the stairs, the nursery's door is open. Her eyes fall on the gangrenous wound of baby blue wallpaper illuminated by the moon and lightning strikes outside the busted up window. Sally pushes herself onto shredded arms, flesh dangling and blood oozing out onto the room carpet. From her resting place, Sally strains to see the crib, to see baby still bundled tight, shivering, but she's not close enough. Go on, boy, the old man commands without urgency, without anger. His pet obeys because he's a good boy. Teeth broken and reset, chiseled to fangs, fed on a diet of meat, penetrate the skin on Sally's feet. She cries, but she doesn't fall. She kicks, one, two, one, two, faster now. Her heel crunches through the pet's nostrils. There's another dull, throbbing ache in her foot as she breaks its nose. Blood gushes into her, its mustache hairs. Thick steel wool wire cable strands clotted with red and green snot. Sally dives for the open door of the nursery, but even a broken nose won't stop the pet. It's got her scent. It's coming for her. Panicked calculations rush through Sally's head. The bathroom door's closer. The bathroom door's got a lock. Sally finishes her leap, spinning her broken and torn body as she goes. Once she's inside, she shoves her body back against the bathroom door. It clicks shut just as the pet slams into it from the other side. The door is made of old wood, strong wood as Val's dad loved to remind her while he walked through the house, knocking on every damn door to prove their permanence. Sally's crying as she reaches for the lock. I'm sorry, baby. The scratching follows, quick, urgent, scrambling, peeling off the door's painted and lacquered surface. When Sally closes her eyes to try and keep the tears at bay, she pictures the pet's nails snapping off while strips of off-white paint tear away. Its blood turns the whole mixture into a foaming pink gruel-like metaled cotton candy insulation. Sally pulls herself away from the door, streaking blood and bits of skin across the black and white checkerboard tile floor. Vomit explodes from her lips and between her fingers, a heady mix of hot tea, blood, and Sally's breaking point. It splatters into the toilet bowl. When she's finished, Sally sits back, cold tile on her legs and ass. The pet's still on the other side of the bathroom door, panting, whining. She dry heaves, but she's got nothing more to give the porcelain gods. Sally wants her phone. She needs her phone. Jesus, my phone. She could call Val. He'd kill the son of a bitch. But she remembers leaving the phone in the nursery, playing ocean sounds to help babies sleep. Sally wonders where the old man's gone with a sobbing exhausted breath she turns and faces the door she expects she'll find the old man on the other side waiting with his pet instead she hears baby first there's an inquisitive high-pitched gurgle the scratching against the door slows then baby unleashes a shriek to match the rage of the storm outside black spots float before sally's eyes but she still sees him forehead wrinkled, cheeks wobbling, his tongue presses against the bottom of his mouth, giving whoever dares look inside his crib a full view of the black and pink of his insides. My baby, he's crying for me. Sally presses her ear hard against the bottom of the door, desperate for more. Baby becomes her anchor, keeping her moored to this hellish reality. Each colicky, coughing exclamation keeps her fighting to breathe, to live. She shakes her head. Bangs slick with blood and sweat flick across heavy-lidded eyes. No, no, no. The scratching stops. The slap, slap, slap of palms and calloused foot pads moving along the hallway hardwood follows. The old man's next command drifts in under the bathroom door, like cursed words from a nightmare's ending before you wake soaked in fear all alone. What are you waiting for? Bring me the new pet looking to pull the attention away from the baby. Sally pounds bloody fists against the door, streaking crimson across the old, reliable wood. Fuck your property value, Ken. Fuck you and your son and the stupid house. The pet stops in its tracks. The pounding does the trick. 
Sally drops to the floor, pressing a cheek against the cold tile. One eye is all she can manage, looking through the slight gap between the bottom of the door and the floor. Out in the hallway, the pet twitches in place, waiting, baby still crying. What do you think about this mobile for his crib? Sally asks Val, picking it up from a flea market table. Val's eyes remain fixed on his phone screen. By now, Sally's already read the first of the text. She can't help it. He keeps his damn screen so bright, it's impossible not to read every I miss you and XOXO flashing by whenever he leaves his phone unattended. You'd think he'd try a tad more fucking discretion. But none of it matters. All she wants is for him to tell her he likes the mobiles she selected for baby's crib. What the hell is it? He asks already walking five steps ahead before she can answer, already moving, always moving. It's a piece of macaroni in a tricolored hat with some smaller stars around it. And when you turn it, it plays, you know what, Never mind. Sally hands the woman behind the table the money marked on the price tag and shoves her purchase deep inside her purse. The heels Val insists she wears when they go out in public click clack against the asphalt of the basketball court turned flea market. Yankee Doodle went to town. Sally sings, her voice rasping and barking, caked in blood and phlegm, but she keeps going, watching the hallway through the sliver under the door. She watches the pet stuck between the bathroom and the nursery. Riding on a pony, baby's cries slow. The pet turns away from the nursery. The stairs creak, this time from the bottom. Here comes the old man. Stuck a feather in his. The pet scratches at the bathroom door again, but not like before. There's an urgency, yes, but missing the violence from before. Cap'n called it. The tears come. Sally lets her breath out in rapid succession. And one, and two, and come on, here's the head. Sally doesn't want to know if she heard the pet say macaroni when the doorknob turns and she pulls the door open to rush from the bathroom. She can't take it if it's true. Baby's not crying anymore, but it's not enough. She's at the top of the stairs again. The pet moves more ape-like than canine now. He's coming to tear her face off. The old man stands on the landing, wearing a nightmarish, mile-wide smile between his sunken cheeks. She won't let him win. Sally throws herself down the stairs, into the arms of the old man. The pet follows, bloody fingernails and teeth serve as claws and fangs, doing what comes natural after years of conditioning and training. Sally's outside herself. She watches her body tumble, bouncing off step after step. The old man won't stop her. A limb snaps, not Sally's. A howl of pain, not her own. More black spots appear, deeper and darker. Bad, bad, not me, you stupid animal. Screaming, gibbering, curses echo off the townhouse walls. So this is what it sounds like when someone dies. Looking up from the bottom of the stairs, Sally watches the pet dragging the old man into her living room. The old man's face is gone. No false tears, no wicked smiles. Everything goes black. Then there's light again. Who's crying? The front door is open. Sally doesn't remember dragging herself there, but she peers through the open doorway nevertheless. A delivery truck speeds too fast down the wet road. Its horn screams out a warning too late for a naked young man who runs past Sally and out of the townhouse, not looking where he's going. No one's around to yell, heal. Sally sits on her front stoop. She's shivering, pulling herself back from the dark. They've got their flashlight beams dancing across her eyes, but they've given her a thick emergency blanket to cover the ragged remnants of her nightgown, at least. Blue lights swirl, making the last of the rain look like laundry detergent, washing nightmares away. Plastic poncho-clad, black hat-wearing wannabe tough guys, like Val, but with badges, yell at Sally's neighbors, telling everyone to go home. But they won't stop. They stand on their stoops and lean out their windows. Where'd you rich bastards hide when I needed you, huh? Sally can't shake the sudden feeling something's missing. 
She ignores the EMT's questions about how many fingers they're holding up, the offered hands ready to take her to the waiting ambulance she can't afford. She leans forward to get a better view of the street. There's a black bag zipped shut, the trucks pulled off to the side of the too tight thoroughfare. There's a similar black bag inside the house, but someone's missing. Sally cranes her neck, blood caked fingertips pushing away offered help. She stands on wobbling rag dog legs. Sally checks the end of the block. Nobody's there. Behind Sally, someone steps out and ducks under the yellow tape stretched across the entrance to the townhouse. All clear upstairs. There's no one else in the house. Sally listens for, but doesn't hear, the slap, slap, slap of cheap rubber flip-flops against the wet sidewalk. She misses the gray hooded figure with her pale white pillowcase saw fingers wrapped tight around the ornate handle of a baby carriage. She misses the squeaking wheels, the cradle rattling in its frame. I wonder what she hides under those baggy clothes. I wonder how fast she'd climb the fire escape behind the house. If only Sally could stop screaming, then she'd pick out those squeaking stroller wheels and the slap, slap, slap of flip-flops splashing along the wet sidewalk, moving away from the flashing light. A block or so away, the baby carriage lady beams at her new pet. She hadn't needed to tell it to be quiet. It'll be easier to train, much easier than the last one. She'd raise this new pet fine all by herself. After all, hadn't she done a good job finding it, waiting for the right moment to snatch it, separating it before it became too attached, too dependent on its mother? One thing's certain. This new pet has the makings of a very good boy. The end. All right. Yay. That was so much fun. All right. So now, everyone, I'm going to bring on a very special guest before we get to um, the interview with Patrick. So tonight, our special guest is a wonderful writer by the name of Matthew Robinson. And I'm going to give you his wonderful breakdown here. Matthew Robinson is a filmmaker and playwright who has worked on various projects for the Hollywood Fringe Festival and directed a short play for LACMA. He has most recently directed an episode of the comedic web series, Mr. Harmack Returns. He also directed the short film, The Beach, which is currently playing in several film festivals. His latest project is Bloody Bloody Coda, a horror short film he wrote and directed as a tribute to Italian horror. And you can find all of um, Matthew's extensive uh, work at his website, MatthewSRobinson.com. Okay, so let's bring Matthew on. Hi, Matthew. Megan, thanks for having me on today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, so before we get into uh, talking about Patrick's story, I'm going to set the clock so we don't ramble on for too long. Totally fine. I mean, I love bringing out the clock. The clock's always my favorite part. It's like, you're like, look at that. Look at that. It's so tactile. It's it's fantastic. <laughs> I know. I, I love this guy. So um, people who've been listening for a while will know this, but um, for those who have just tuned in, this is Cranky. Uh, he is a old-timey darkroom clock. So if you were uh, developing photos back in the day before digital, you had to have a clock to set your exposure and how long your pictures set in the in the developer uh, chemicals. And so this was the this was the type of clock that they that they used. And my godfather gave this to me because he used to develop his own photos. Wonderful, I love it. Hello, cranky. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. All right, so Matthew, what did you think of Patrick's story? Oh my gosh, that was so intense and so creepy and terrifying. I I was like, yo, I was writing notes as I was listening to you and I was like, this is sick. I was like, this is so horrifying. Uh, what a great creature too, but also what a like, just unnerving and totally horrifying concept 
of like how this creature is uh, created. And uh, yeah, my guess Sally is going, she is having a rough time. And I just, this was so well put together. I, I was I was glued to it. Yeah, I know. I, I totally agree. I feel like everything about this story is creepy. Like even Sally's recounts of her domestic life feels very oppressive and creepy. <laughs> and mixed in with her like you you feel her frazzled emotional state and then she gets involved with this old man this creepy old man who comes and it's like yeah poor sally like she's really having the worst day of her life after what sounds like yeah yeah oh my gosh yeah but i but i agree with you i think patrick's handling of the material and the way that he structures how he doles out the information about Sally's life and kind of where she is and what her day has been like, I think is a, is a testament to his craft because he, he does it in such a way that like, I don't feel like he's top loading exposition. I don't feel like he's, um, you know, playing with me or manipulating me. Like I'm like, Oh yeah, this is exactly when I need to know this bit of information. <laughs> no, no, it was very well like plain planned out for you to get the information at the at the level time for the character to be revealing it to for us to know in terms of our tension and our fears and uh, just how it made us feel. But I, I agree, it was so planned out and like, oh, okay, this is when you need to know this bit of information and this is when it's going on. You're like, oh my gosh, like it's just the layers that unfold as the story progresses is is truly masterful, I felt. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And there's the the last flashback at the very end where she's like under the, like, you know, you're in it and she's under the door and she's like, you know, I'm like, oh my God, what's gonna happen? And then he cuts to the flea market with Val. When I first read that, I was like, what are we doing? Why are we at the flea market? And then, you know it's very shortly you go back and then she's singing the song from the mobile and i was like oh my god and it just all came together and it was it was just that much more powerful when you when you realize the that's an intense i love it it's an intense alarm um anyway i've heard I that just, since uh, middle school yeah yeah <laughs> right it's the um it's that same sound of like uh, the the buzzers from from class. Is that right. what you're talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, let's bring on Patrick. But before we do, I want to tell everybody about all of Patrick's wonderful things that he's doing right now. So Patrick Barb is an author of weird, dark, and horrifying tales. Obviously currently living and trying not to freeze to death in St. Paul, Minnesota. He is the author of the novellas Gargantuana's Ghost from Grey Matter Press, Turn, Alien Buddha Press, which will come out in November, and The Nut House, which is currently being serialized in Cosmic Horror Monthly through December, Ooh. as well as the forthcoming dark fiction collection, Pre-Approved for Haunting, which is coming out by Key Light Books Turner Publishing in October of 2023. And this story that you guys just heard will be a part of that, co that collection. You can find um, all of Patrick's other information at patrickbarb.com, or you can follow him at twitter.com slash pbarb. So let's bring Patrick on. Hi, Patrick. Hello. Welcome to Nobody Reads Short Stories. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, it's wonderful. Just uh, full disclosure to our readers, I have known Patrick for 20 years. 20 plus <laughs> years, I think, maybe. 20 plus years, yeah. yes. Yeah, go way back. Yeah, we, we both went to undergrad <laughs> together, and he was a wonderful writer there, and I am not surprised that he is continuing with that trend, uh, tradition now um these all these decades later so i'm so excited to have patrick's story on the show and also to be doing this interview right now um so patrick tell us what was the inspiration for this story um 
yeah, I, I was kind of like thinking about these questions before doing the interview. I was like, I know this is going to come up. Um, I think I just really had this idea of wanting to, on, on one hand, sort of portray this dehumanization of this this pet character and, and sort of show someone transformed into this more bestial creature um, without doing it through you know kind of supernatural means let's say so it's it's a it's a little bit of a werewolf type of character but it's mm. there's no bite there's no moon or anything like that um and on the other hand i am a parent i have two boys uh one who's seven and one who's four and i think the story was written when they were a little bit younger and you know wanting to capture that exhaustion that comes with parenting and these fears that come mm. of kind of losing control of yourself uh, when you're when you're dealing with your kids and also kind of losing control of, of your child and, and what they will become. So sort of mix those all together with a fair amount of creepiness. And I mean, this is the, the end product, really. Yeah, I, I think you capture all of that so well. And I and I, I feel Sally's exhaustion. I feel her being overwhelmed. I mean, I think you, you really captured that that well. I mean, I personally don't have kids, but uh, from all the stories that I've heard from my my female friends who who have been in similar experiences, minus the 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 <laughs> you know the dehumanized person, um, I I think you you captured it captured it really well. Yeah. Um, yeah. One can... thing. Oh. Sorry, no, go ahead, Matthew. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, with Sally, I mean, you're talking about kind of the inspiration for it and like the fears that you're playing into. Is Sally more of a cipher? Is she a symbolic character? Like, how did you approach creating this protagonist and how much of yourself is in Sally? Um, I mean, I think there is a, a fair amount of myself, but also my wife. Um, and, and sort of seeing, you know, as a father, I've certainly dealt with my own exhaustion and, and sort of dealing with kids. But I think as, as Megan was saying, like for women, a lot of times for mothers in particular, I mean, um, there's just that extra layer that goes into it. Um, and then I think I just drew from other friends' experiences. Um, you know, I think one of the things you find when you're a parent a lot of times is um, talking to other people and, and seeing that a lot of these experiences are not as unique as you might think. So a lot of that exhaustion, a lot of that um, frustration that comes through are, are things that at the time seem like you're the only person facing these things. And you really find that there's, it's more of a universal uh, thing really. So I kind of drew on all of that um, and put it into this character who, I, you know, I um, didn't live in like the really rich part of Park Slope, let's say when I was in New York, but I was in New York um, for seven years uh, after undergrad. And so I'm familiar with these kind of neighborhoods and people. And I wanted to sort of set this character in this place where there is all this potential support around her, but she's still abandoned, still feels isolated in a way. So, um, that all kind of came into the mix as well. Oh, I love that. Um, I was also thinking in the, along the same lines of how something like this could happen and it's, and no one would know, like to your point, Patrick, you were saying earlier, like this creature isn't created because he was bitten or it was something supernatural. Like he was groomed to to be this way and he's obviously lived in this neighborhood for quite some time and like no one's really realized it or if they have maybe they haven't said anything and so there is this this underlying tension and and creepiness that comes from the neighbors and the neighborhood and the uh, to your point like there's people around but sally is still so alone and isolated and it it makes it to me it made it logical that this old man and his wife would be living in this neighborhood with this creature in their basement for 15 years and no one would know about it mm -hmm. uh i thought i thought that was you know handled handled so well and i really 
I really liked how every every bit of the story supports the the creepiness of Sally's experience and the tension of of her experience. Yeah, I mean that was I mean that was obviously the goal. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> when that when that happens, I'm always happy to to hear it. Um, but really, I mean, you know, I think the thing why I wanted it set in the city as, as opposed to like an old house in the country or something is that I you can live in a city and still feel alone, still feel isolated. You can know every person's face that you see every day on the walk to the subway um, and still not be known or still not know everything. And so I really felt like that was a better setting to, to sort of, you know, service that contrast really. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that as well. Yeah. There's so many, I think when we're writing horror, sometimes we jump to the, the country's creepy, right? The, <laughs> the, there's a lot of shadows. There's a lot of unknown things going there. And, and that might be the the low hanging fruit of of settings, um, but I I think the to your point the city holds its own sort of menacing vibe uh, for various for various reasons, and I think you definitely captured that. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Can you talk to us a little bit about um, your influences and like what sort of horror you like and um, what you feel like may have influenced the story at all? Sure. Um, I mean, I came to horror through uh, movies originally. I think a lot of people do. So I wide range uh, from the film side of things, uh, everything from like slashers to zombies to more like quiet horror, um, giallo, um, things like that. So when I got more into writing prose, I um, you know started reading a lot of horror short stories and collections and a lot of like weird fiction. Um, so, you know, it starts with like, you know, HP Lovecraft, but also moving into more contemporary uh, writers like Laird Barron or John Langan. Um, Kelly Link is somebody else who I think just does delightfully creepy, um, gets under your skin sort of literary horror. And I think my style, if I'm going to describe it somewhere sits in the, middle between you know quiet or literary but also like the splattery gore of the slasher films that i enjoy watching like i like to have a little bit of guts spilled on the floor um but i want to make it sound really nice when it when you when you're reading about it like i want to have like a turn of phrase that's going to stick with you or something like that so that's basically where i'm trying to to sit as a writer uh, more or less mm -hmm. Well, you know, you're talking about how you describe things. One of my favorite lines or little kind of moments is when she first is introduced to, you know, the beast, you know, the, the, the creature, the boy, the uh, the the pet. And it's, uh, it's you described as uh, something that was essentially, uh, it, it wasn't allowed to grow into manhood. It's something went wrong. It was raised wrong. And that imagery but also that commentary that Sally is recognizing with Pat is so just like slightly unnerving because it feels so real. It's like, you know, you run into somebody or you meet somebody and like, they're like, yeah, something's wrong, something's mm -hmm. off. And I think that plays into a very natural feel that we have. And like, you know, that image there, and that was something that really uh, stuck out to me. Like, you know, when you were writing this, what was that you're going for with this pet? Like, how were you trying to make us feel with it? Like, how'd you come up with like, this is how it's gonna look, here's how I'm gonna describe it. Uh, what were you drawing from there? Um, I think it's a mix of, you know, I think there was, the stories that you see about um, women kept in basements of, by from like, uh, as kidnappers and things like that, and our children that are kidnapped and, and things like that. And, you know, a lot of times it's taken to, you know, either they're recovered, but they have some trauma that's come along with them or they're, they're not recovered. And, and we assume that there is, you know, some sort of terrible ending that's happened. Um, I started thinking about, okay, well, what if you're trying to turn this 
child into something else like how would you go about it and so i think in the story there's a little bit of talk about like the conditioning that goes on and the grooming as megan said that that, that happens but i also started thinking about okay well how would they make it look like a pet what would this there look to make it more animalistic and so the idea of like the long fingernails the letting the hair grow out letting the the facial hair grow as this child turns into a young man and then i started you know thinking about like how would they train it to walk how would they you know you have to walk on all fours and, and sort of how would that transformation uh what would it look like um so i mean i'm imagining some sort of kind of shaggy haired person but also it's it's beyond a person now it's this animal essentially um and I also find that, like, I, I want to take the reader to a certain point and, and take them far enough where I can say, okay, now you imagine from here. Like, this is, I've taken you pretty far here. You can picture the rest. And so uh, hopefully that's what comes across in, in the story. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, I love that too with horror where I, I mean, that's one of the things that I like about the genre of horror is that you can take your, excuse me, you can take your audience to a certain level and then they can kind of run with it. And you don't have to describe every single thing. Like you're, if you're conscious enough of their imagination and what they're going to how they're going to re um, think about it in their head, how they're going to imagine it in their head, then it's, it's almost like you have this other playground or palette to work with because you know how they're going to take it. And, and I appreciate that. I appreciated the brevity. I felt like the, the descriptions that you gave us, especially at the, at the end with the, the pet attacking the old man and then running out of the house. Like I loved how, I could picture all of that with the few details that you gave us, but it also made me feel like I was connected to Sally and her sort of disconnected experience as well because of that brevity. I thought it worked kind of in a, in a twofold with that. Um, but I definitely think that worked, that worked so well for me. Yeah. I think that's a, a sort of a form and function and then just the writer's own, um, uh, maybe lack of ability in a way it's like okay um i could i could beat this out beat by beat this sort of fight thing but um i why not just let you know like you said these sort of impression they leave these impressionistic uh details uh for for the reader to fill in so that me as a writer i don't have to do the work <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I think that's one thing i've learned writing is is it's as much just learning when to stop and, and you know, let the words uh, that you've given do their do their thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like part of part of understanding the craft is as much about when not to write as a as it is to know when to write. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, well, one one other thing that I wanted to mention about this story is the the humor in it. I love that we get these thoughts from, from Sally about, you know, she's talking shit about her father-in-law and she's, you, you know, putting down her ex-husband rightfully. So it's, it sounds like, um, <laughs> but I, I just love that, that we get that sort of everyday woman just dealing with her personal issues mm -hmm. voice that's very authentic and very real and very funny in the way that real life is, is fun, you know, funny and heartbreaking at the same time. And it works so well with this, with the story, with the darkness, with the, with the gore and all of that mixed in together. Like I really appreciated that. And I think that helps me to get through the darker parts of it because I I'm grounded in the, the humanity and the authenticity of this of this humor because so much of life is is oddly funny in dark times yeah i mean that's i i, I agree with you 100 percent um i like i mean i'm a big fan of horror comedy as, as a genre but i think even for something that's like more straightforward horror 
you have to have, at least I feel, some humor or some levity to to things um, because that helps establish the humanity uh, there. Uh, I think like I I like to laugh. I like people who are funny. I like to that that helps me connect with people a lot of times, and so I try to inject that in in characters like Sally um, because that's you know, what I relate to as a reader. And so I'm hoping that that then carries through uh, to, to my own readers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think so. I think it comes, I think it comes off um, really yeah. well. All right. So um, Matthew, do you have any further questions for Patrick? Well, I, the, the last question I just wanted to ask Patrick about this was, uh, what was like the most fun part of writing this short story? Like what was really like where you were like, oh my gosh, this is just like, this is why I write, this is so much fun. <laughs> I honestly, I think it was probably, well, two things now. Um, Sally's sort of asides were always fun because I liked like sort of having this parallel you know, you're getting the parallel story of how she got to that point and working backwards, uh, really, and, and going back to the sort of beginnings of her relationship with Val. And, and you know, as Megan mentioned before um, in the discussion, like bringing in the, the mobile and everything, like I like that as sort of a parallel track. Um, I think really, though, um, I love twist endings. I like I, I have no shame in loving the twist ending. Um, I wanted to to pull one off if I could um, and sort of having this, um, you know, potential couple um, set up a earlier in the story with the, the baby carriage lady and, and sort of, you know, you know, hanging a lantern on it, I thought to, to a certain extent. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, wanting to have that moment, um, you know, I, don't want it, the story ends on a darker note. I mean, it doesn't end to have a happy ending um, unless you are the, the baby carriage lady, I suppose. Uh, then it's a happy ending. Uh, so it's always good to sort of consider every character's point of view, right? Like somebody's having a happy ending here. It just depends on, you know, who we're, who we're whose lens we're looking through. Um, so I thought really kind of pulling that together and sort of having that sort of final uh, postscript moment almost, um, was really kind of the most fun uh, thing to put together. Right, I, I, I can tell, I mean, just hearing it, it was just like, oh my gosh, I mean, the amount of fun, despite how dark it was, the amount of fun I was having listening to it, uh, you know, with Megan Reed and your words was just like, it's like, oh, this is, this is like the great kind of like dark horror that you just, or, you know, you can soak on a nice uh, rainy day. <laughs> well, thank you, I appreciate that. <laughs> Oh, well, wonderful. Well, Patrick, is there anything else you would like to add before we let you go? Um, when is this air? When is this going out? <laughs> I think uh, it's going to to go on um, Halloween night. Excellent. Okay. Well, I, uh, as you mentioned, I have Gargantuana's Ghost, my novella from Grey Matter Press. That's uh, dark fantasy uh, about the ghost of a giant ape like King Kong, who is. Uh, riding the F train uh, from Manhattan to Brooklyn and a young man who befriends this ghost and tries to reunite her uh, with the one person who uh, was friendly to her while she was alive. Um, that's out uh, on the 18th. Uh, so I hope people will, uh, will pick it up. Oh, wonderful. Well, I, that sounds oh amazing. Gosh. And I, I definitely want yeah. to check that one out. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Patrick, thank you so much. Again, I appreciate you submitting this story and letting us feature it on the show. And I'm so excited about uh, all of the various things that you have cooking. And I can't wait to, to read more of your stories. And thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. And thank you for the interview. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, you're welcome. Bye, Patrick. Oh my gosh, that was so good. Thank you, Matthew. I really appreciate you taking 
Yeah, thank you so much for, for taking the time to be our special guest tonight. It was wonderful to have you here with Patrick. Oh, it was my pleasure. I, it's really cool. I'm glad to Zarin on Halloween. Hoping everyone's a spooky good time. Uh, but no, I always love coming <laughs> on the show and I always love watching. So anytime, always, always down to come on. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. All right. So that concludes another fantastic episode of Nobody Reads Short Stories. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. You can find all of our previous episodes at nobodyreadshortstories.com. Watch all of our videos on YouTube. Please like and subscribe as well as download. You can download our audio podcast from Stitcher, Google, Amazon, um, Apple Podcasts, basically anywhere you listen to your audio podcast, you can find us. So thank you so much and we will see you guys soon. No one reads short stories anymore. I really don't know what they're written for. Go write a short story and throw it out the door. Cause no one reads short stories. Funny, sad, or gory. No one reads short stories anymore. Yes, no one reads short stories.